0: All right, you can go to Matthew chapter 1 if you'd like. Two weeks ago, we read and studied Luke chapter 2, verse 12, and it says, this should be a sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. The Bible is full of the phrase, signs and wonders. The Old Testament speaks often of signs and wonders and sometimes this comes in miraculous form, this grand gesture, very obvious, uh, a working of God, but other times they're much simpler. Other times it is simply a basic visual cue that grabbed people's attention and caused them to, to think about the things of God and today We still have signs and wonders like that, although not necessarily miraculous or grand in nature. Uh, They are around us. And Jesus was known, of course, for performing miracles, the grand signs and wonders that grabbed people's attentions. And people loved to follow him so they could see those miracles, those incredible things. And obviously God was using those signs and wonders to cause the people to to draw attention to Jesus, the Christ. He intends for us, of course, when we read these things, to ponder the truth, to ponder the truth of what the sign represents or what it presents. And so during his ministry, Jesus, there were even times where people stopped and asked him, show us a sign. Now, can you imagine kind of the audacity of what they're actually asking? They're, they're actually saying, Wow, you do really cool things. Can you do something cool for us? Can you just do something just, just amazing and glorious? We want to see something phenomenal. Do something as if Jesus was a performer for them. And yet sometimes we want a sign from God. Many times I've heard people express their desire for a a physical sign or uh, an obvious indicator or event that will spark their immediate response and yet we're told in the very important words of jesus of matthew chapter 12 verse 39 he says this an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet jonah Jesus then goes on to describe uh, the events of Jonah being swallowed by a great fish and being released after three days from what seemed to be an impending death and how that resembles Jesus Christ, that resembles the Savior being swallowed up by death and then three days later rising from the dead, proving the grave has no victory over him. And so this is proof. It's a sign that Jesus is the Messiah. uh, Jesus also said in John 4, 48, Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. So I urge you today to move away from signs and wonders and venture into faith, where we examine the work of God and in strong faith Christ calls us to trust him alone, to put our confidence in Christ alone. And so Jesus reiterates that truth repeatedly while he walks the earth. And he says that actually in John chapter 4, he says that to a certain nobleman who comes because his son is sick and he wants him to heal his son and and the people are clamoring for a sign and, and Jesus urges the man to return home. In fact he says that he says except you see signs and wonders you will not believe and so jesus told the man to return home in faith and the man did and what did he find his son had been healed to be honest your religion is of no use if it doesn't result in actionable faith your knowledge of god is of no use if it doesn't result in spiritual work inside of you. Many people followed Jesus because he did these amazing signs and wonders. They wanted the benefit of following Jesus, but without the cost, which is why as soon as he began to preach hard messages, what happened? They left him. They followed him no more. Your faith and my faith must move beyond these Supposed signs or even the, the miraculous things that we hear about in Scripture. And yet, God gives us a sign. He does give us signs. For we ask, how can we recognize the Messiah? How can we know that Jesus is the Christ? And yet, when we read the Scripture, all the signs point to Jesus is Emmanuel. And so, we're going to start by looking at some of the signs or promises that are kept by jesus christ i'm just going to list a bunch of categorical ones in fact in scripture there there are over 365 references in the old testament that are directly filled by jesus christ in the new testament and so here's some of the categories he is said to be a descendant of abraham and this one's a very important we're going to look at it in just a moment In Genesis 12, that promise is given to Abraham, and in Matthew 1, 1, it is fulfilled. He's of the tribe of Judah. And so as we read of all these prophecies of Jesus, what's happening is the field is narrowing to the point that at the arrival of Jesus, there can be only one who meets the promises of the Old Testament. That's the point right the descendants of Abraham are many that's one of the promises that the, his descendants will be as many as the sand of the sea and so this is very broad group a, a broad pool to draw from and yet as we go through these it narrows more and more. He must be of the tribe of Judah, according to Genesis forty-nine, and Luke three, thirty-three tells us he is. He must be the heir of David's throne. This greatly narrows who the Christ could be in Isaiah chapter nine, verse seven. And of course that's fulfilled, or we're told in the genealogy of Luke 1, 32 and 33. He's born in Bethlehem, and yet Micah 5, 2 says, "Oh Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be littlest among the thousands. In other words, you're this tiny little village, and yet from you will come the Messiah. And it narrows more at each one of these prophecies. Then, of course, comes the slaughter of the innocent prophesied in Jeremiah 31 that a wicked king would destroy the little babies of Bethlehem, and it's fulfilled In Matthew chapter 2. And and Jesus, therefore, his parents take him to Egypt and they flee to seek refuge outside of Jerusalem. Hosea 11 tells us that would happen. When Jesus comes of age and begins to teach, he speaks in parables. It foretells of his triumphant entry into the the city of Jerusalem. And of course, Jesus Christ does exactly that. And then there's all kinds of prophecies that, that no man could fulfill. We, people accuse Jesus of reading, being so well read of the scriptures that he purposely tries to fulfill them so that people would think he's the Messiah. But how can Jesus, if he was just a man, be in control of, of his own betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, just as scripture tells us, or that he would be betrayed by a close friend? Jesus Christ, if he were just a man, has no control over his own mockery and of his mistreatment before the cross and leading up to the cross. and yet prophecy uh, tells us centuries before that Christ would be scorned and mocked in Psalm 22, they would, He would be crucified among thieves in Isaiah 53:12, that his hands and his feet would be pierced in Zechariah 12:10, and that not a single bone of his body would be broken in Psalm 34 verse 20. And we know the gospel accounts that every single time one of these prophecies is given, it is speaking only of Jesus the Christ. And so, as the time draws near for Jesus' arrival, the window has narrowed, and it is impossible for any man to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. It must take God in the flesh. And of course, as he's buried with the rich, he then rises from the death, from the dead, proving his authority over a death, proving that he is God in the flesh. And of course, these texts are in complete agreement. Jesus is God. In fact, Jesus is best understood in the context of the Old Testament. It's a heresy to believe that the New Testament presents a new version of god or that there's this different relationship with god than there was in the old testament that's a heresy jesus is the god of the old testament and he perfectly fulfills all the prophecies that he wrote in the old testament and i remind you that god when he makes these promises to abraham and to isaac and to jacob he promises to fulfill them, and He promises by His own name. He swears by His own name because Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because He could swear by no greater, He swore by Himself. He promised by, based on His own name that these things would be completed. And so the New Testament continually unpacks the greatness of God's promises completed in Jesus Christ. Would you turn with me if you haven't yet to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to do the unthinkable here. We are going to read the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I know it's easy and and at times when you get to that in your Bible reading, you 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 say I've read this before. It hasn't changed. I'm going to move over this. There's not a lot here for me to get. Can I tell you there is a lot in this genealogy? Please Bear with me as I try to pronounce all the names correctly. Let's read together James, or, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Amminadab and Amminadab begat Nashon and Nashon begat Salmon. Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, Ahaz begot Hezekiah, Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shiltiel begot Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot Abiad, Abiad begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Azar, Azar begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, Achim begot Eliad, Eliad begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathan, Mathan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the captivity of Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity of Babylon unto the Christ are 14 generations. You now the Bible contains a lot of genealogies. And the genealogies, I'll just say it, okay? They're boring, okay? That's okay to say they're not the most exciting passages. And yet they're packed with really important knowledge the first genealogy real really that we have is Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis five, 5 is a really important genealogy because of course it gives us the descendants from Abraham or I'm I'm sorry from Adam to Abraham but it also gives us this phrase over and over again we get the phrase and he died and he died actually to to Noah a- and what it does is sets this knowledge of scripture that everyone will die. It's inescapable. From the very first man, Adam, everyone will die. And we die because of the curse. We die because every one of us are sinful. And so Adam and Eve sin. Adam sins. And what does he do? He passes on his sin nature to his son. And his son dies. And his son's son dies. And his great-grandchildren die. In all of eternity, or uh, leading up to now, everyone dies. It's inescapable. And that's what Genesis 5 tells us repeatedly. It's almost depressing because of how true it is. And so you will die. You cannot escape it. These genealogies also help us to trace the age of the earth because uh, the one here, Matthew, doesn't, but other genealogies give us the ages. In fact, Genesis 5 gives the age of each man when he dies. And so by going backwards, we can determine that the earth is around 6,100 years old because these men who begat men who begat men, and they all died. Matthew's genealogy, though, is very important. It starts with Abraham, and of course it ends there with Jesus. Fourteen generations at a time in three segments, marking very important moments in Israel's history and arriving to Jesus. And Matthew does a wonderful job. The Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as king. He is the king. In fact, that's the point of the genealogy It's marking the legal claim to the throne of David. David is promised as one of his blessings that his son would sit upon the throne of the world and would establish a kingdom that no man can extinguish or do away with. And Jesus is that king. Every one of the Gospels presents something different. Matthew is written to Jews, so it presents Jesus as the king of the Jews which is why it's so fitting that a a Gentile man would determine that a sign be hung over the king, declaring he is the king. And in mockery, they try to rebuke him, and yet they speak the truth. We can really say, not just literally, but figuratively, that was a sign. Jesus is the king. Mark presents Jesus as a servant. He's a servant, and it's a, it's a book of immediacy. Jesus is moving all through the kingdom of this world, immediately performing miracles and doing works that prove that he is the servant of God. Luke presents Jesus as the son of God. and Luke, being a physician, is very detailed in his explanation that Jesus Christ is 100% man, and yet as 100% man, he is the one who came from God, he is God, and became a man. John presents Jesus as the Son of God. And so Matthew traces this lineage from David to Joseph, giving Jesus Christ the legal claim to the throne. Matthew presents Jesus as the promised King and Redeemer of Israel. And it ends with Jesus. And so the names listed are intended to convey salvation to Israel. To complement this, we have the genealogy of Luke. We're not going to read Luke's genealogy, but Luke traces the lineage of Jesus through Mary. In fact, it works backwards. It starts with Mary, the daughter of Heli, and Luke's genealogy goes through David's son, Nathan, the son of Bathsheba, not through Solomon, the king. It's a different line, yet it meets. At David and Luke gives Jesus the messianic claim to the throne that he's the fulfillment of the promises not just of David but the promise of the covenant of Abraham and so Luke gives us a whole different line that complements, perfectly aligns with the genealogy of Matthew from David all the way back not just to Abraham because Luke's genealogy goes further since the fall of mankind god has promised a coming redeemer in fact genesis chapter 3 immediately after the fall of adam and eve god speaks in genesis chapter 3 verse 15 and he says i will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel god is speaking here to satan But in speaking to Satan, he tells Satan of his ultimate defeat by Jesus on the cross. Satan would issue to Jesus a deadly bite to the heel, a deadly bite that is not fatal. And yet Jesus Christ would crush the head of the serpent, a deadly blow that can never be healed. And he did it when he rose from the dead. And it's amazing that immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve, the first promise of the Redeemer is given. In fact, if you read the succession of the events, it's before the curse is even explained. All the ramifications and punishments of the curse, which Genesis 5 says are, and he died, death. Before the full ramifications of the sin are even felt, God gives the promise of the Redeemer in Genesis chapter 3. And so God promises not just to Adam and to Eve, but He promises through the Abrahamic covenant that, that the people of Israel would be blessed. And we know the Abrahamic covenant. In fact, it's very real right now in the Middle East, is it not? Right? God promises to Abraham and his rightful descendants that they would have land and they would have blessing and they would have an innumerable people, a people that's too many to count, and God would bless the nation. But the greatest blessing of the Abrahamic covenant is the Savior. As much as Israel loves the blessings of land and a people, a special people even, and as much as they love all those blessings of fruitfulness and blessing upon them, the greatest blessing of all is the Savior. And God reiterates that same promise in the Davidic covenant where he promises peace and people and blessings. And there's no greater king in Israel that people love to talk about and follow than King David. They still look to King David as the greatest king that they ever had. And yet they miss the greatest part of the Davidic covenant that God would send a Redeemer. And they're still looking for that Redeemer. And yet Luke tells us, going all the way from Mary to David, that Jesus is the Redeemer. Hundreds of promises and prophecies of the Old Testament are presented concerning Jesus, the Messiah. In fact, if you'd like, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 3, to Luke's genealogy, and I want to point something out one very important thing out to you. We're going to come back to this in a moment, but Luke chapter 3, in verse 23, we have the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice how it starts. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Haley. Now, the son of Joseph is important, but, but it's the fact that Haley's daughter is Mary, the son of Mattah, the son of Levi. And then if you arrive all the way at the end, of verse 38, we see that we've passed, long past Abraham. And verse 38 says, the son of Enoch, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of We're going to come back to that very important truth in a moment. But Luke presents Jesus as the Savior of mankind. The genealogy of Luke is so important because it doesn't just span from Abraham or David to Jesus. It goes back to the very first Adam who Luke calls the direct descendant of God. Because God made Adam from the ground. And so it covers all of humanity because Jesus died for the sins of all humanity. Not just the Jewish nation. And so both genealogies are powerful and very pointed, very direct. But what I want you to notice about the genealogies, if you would go back with me, I'm sorry, but back to Matthew's genealogy, because I want you to see that Matthew's genealogy is a little bit different besides Mary being mentioned, there are four other women who are mentioned in the genealogy, which is a bit unorthodox. I know that now Israel claims heritage through the The birthright through the mother, but that's not how genealogies were written in the New Testament era or before. It was written through the father. All the genealogies passed through the father. And yet here in Matthew, we have, of course, we have Mary being mentioned, but there's four other women who are mentioned. So this is very unorthodox. The first woman mentioned is Tamar, and she's from Genesis chapter 38. And Tamar was a a sibling of the 12 brothers who threw Joseph into the pit. She is a a, a relative of Judah, a descendant of Judah, and uh, she's not, I don't know how I put this, she's not the most righteous woman. She's deceitful. She tricks her father-in-law into having a child with her. So there's this illegitimate segment, what we would call illegitimate segment of a genealogy, In fact, it's not even the most illegitimate one. There's more. Because after Tamar is listed, we have Rahab listed. And we studied Rahab a few months ago as we were walking through the conquest of Israel, and it's an amazing thing. Somebody even asked me why. does The the Bible, it's almost making a point. Whenever it says Rahab, what else does it say? The harlot. I mean, boy, this poor woman for all eternity. Her past is haunting her, right? And yet in that, we learn of her wickedness and her absolute undeservedness to be even a part of Israel, let alone part of the Davidic line, part of the line of Christ, the Messiah from Abraham, from Adam to Abraham to David to Jesus. She's not even Jewish. And yet God includes her in the line of Christ. It is an impeccable display of grace by God. And that's why she's included. There is not a single sliver of of evidence that Rahab was ever a harlot after the moment of her conversion. And yet that's how she's remembered. And it's because that's how great God's redemption is. And I have to tell you, I don't know what heaven will be like. But in heaven, she has nothing to be ashamed of. And I wonder, will she be still called Rahab the harlot? Not because, simply out of a display of God's grace and his redemption. Probably not. Well, there's a a third woman mentioned. She is Ruth. She's described as being righteous, patient. She has a, really a horrible uh, uh, series of events that occurs to her, and yet she is not of the tribe of Israel. She too is a Gentile, and she is grafted in as Boaz comes and comforts her and cares for her and provides for her, and she becomes a descendant of Jesus. In fact, very closely linked to David. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 11, we read the horrific story of David and his betrayal and his destroying of his friendship with Uriah, his breaking of many of the commandments of God, as he not only lusts and covets, but he lies and murders one of his closest friends, and then takes his friend's wife as his own. And yet Bathsheba, this adulterous woman, is included in the line of Christ. As I said, I think there's really important significance in this. I think it's best summed up with Romans chapter 5, verse 20, that says, where sin abounded... Grace did much more about And so it gives me and you hope. If God not only redeems but includes people like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba in in the line of Christ, then surely His grace is also sufficient for you and I. And as bad and as, as atrocious as their sins are, God's grace is far greater. And so God can and does use broken people to accomplish his will. And that's what the genealogy of Matthew tells us. That's what it tells me. That's what it should tell you. That it doesn't matter how far gone we are, how far off, how wicked, how absolutely atrocious our sinful lives have been. God's grace is more than sufficient for us. It's interesting, though, uh, you might not know it because it's, by, uh, it's silent, but the people much smarter than I figured out that there are names missing from these genealogies. And it's not that there's a generation missing, it's that a generation has been bypassed. A person has been bypassed because of their wickedness. And so you have descendants to the line of, of David's throne, That although they were king, they were wicked kings. And so God passed over them and chose one of their brothers to be the direct line to the throne of David. We have Ah Ahaziah, he's the son of wicked Ahab. He does just as much wickedness and more than his father Ahab and his mother Jezebel. He is wicked. And so he's removed from the line of Christ because he did not love God. He did not follow God. He did not pursue God. He did not respond to God. In fact, he did those things that were evil in the sight of the Lord. We have Joash and Amaziah. Both of them, the same phrase appears, they refused to remove the high places. The high places where the... the, the, the points in Israel where idolatry had been set up and these kings actually protected the wicked idolatrous worship of false gods rather than give glory and obedience to the genuine one true God they literally tried to lead the nation away from Jehovah and to false gods and therefore God has removed them from the line of the messiah And he's replaced them with their siblings who were godly. They followed after the same ways of Jezebel, and so this royal lineage to Jesus bypasses them. There's a fourth king who's omitted, and that's Jehoiakim. He was the king when Babylon uh, came. He was really just a puppet king for Babylon. He was not a godly king. He did not love his nation. He did not love The nation's God. And so he's removed from that line. They're all missing from this genealogy. We have instead several women put into the genealogy, which according to practices is not the standard. And yet they, by the grace of God, are recognized as being tools of the Lord to bring about redemption to the world. And then we have names removed, forfeited, because they did not love God, they did not love his salvation, they did not believe in the Christ. And therefore, they're not part of the royal lineage. And yet, as I said, Luke's genealogy has this unique statement at the end where it moves from Abraham was the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arfaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Luke's genealogy is very important because it gives finality. Adam is the first man. Jesus, the Christ, is the last man. The last Adam. That phrase is kind of unusual to us because we know that people live on. There's people beyond Jesus, right? There are men born past him but what it means is he adam is directly created by god and as god breathed into him he became a living creature and he is classified as the son of god coming directly from god he is birthed here in and mankind begins and jesus is called the last adam in fact he's called the last adam not here but in first corinthians 15 verse 45 1 Corinthians 15, 45 says, And so it was written, The first Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Quickening means to make alive. The first Adam, by his actions, brings death. The last Adam, by his actions, brings life and restoration. No more would a person need to be born after Christ and suffer an empty, meaningless life that culminates in death and separation from God. The last person born into the world with no Redeemer is Jesus Christ because He is the Redeemer. He is born being the Son of God. And as the Redeemer, He brings about complete restoration to every Adam, to everything that Adam destroyed. Adam birthed sin into the world, and Jesus destroyed all the penalties for that sin. So I ask you, where do you fit into the storyline of Jesus. You know, our life might not s- seem very important or, or maybe it's insignificant to most people, but it is not insignificant to Jesus. He died for your sins. He died to include you in the heritage of the redeemed. Your earthly heritage gives you no claim to godliness, it doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter how important your parents are. It certainly doesn't matter how righteous your parents are. It only matters if you are a descendant of Jesus Christ. And I don't mean a blood descendant in the sense of humanity. And that you receive from your parents genetics, a genetic code, a sin nature. You must be a blood descendant of Jesus Christ. His blood alone is what pays for your salvation. Only what Jesus has done for you matters. And so if you've never repented and surrendered to the perfect promise keeper of the Old Testament, the redeemer of sinful men, then I urge you today to repent. Not asking for a grand sign or a special wonder uh, that, that displays God's truth, but simply believing the truth that God says about Himself in His Word that He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh who suffered on that cross for you and me. Suffered as the sinless sacrifice that we studied in Isaiah. I urge you today to repent and ask for forgiveness Seek forgiveness from your sin nature that you have. So that when Genesis 5 hits you and you die, you will pass into eternity with Christ because he lives. If you're here today and confident in your salvation, then I ask you a different question How is your faith being lived out? I did not ask how your religion is being lived out. We live out our religion when we do what is right. We live out our religion when we keep the commandments of God. We live out our religion when we talk of righteousness. But we live out our faith when we love people enough to have spiritual conversations with them. We live out our faith when we sacrifice our time to serve others with nothing in return, simply so that God gets the glory. We live out our faith when we devote time to being with God rather than just trying to attain knowledge of God. There's a big difference between religion and faith. So what truth of God, what promises of God have been especially meaningful to you lately? We might have knowledge of the promises of God. We might have, I've got okay, here 365 prophecies. I think it's 10 pages long, single-spaced of prophecies from the Old Testament. You can memorize every single one of these prophecies and every single one of the references that that they're fulfilled in the New Testament and you can have all that vast knowledge of God and it does you nothing if in faith you don't respond to them. And so what promises of God have impacted your heart and brought change in your life? How have the promises of, of God changed who you are inside, not just outside. When's the last time you sacrificed personal time to meet a need for Christ? That's living by faith, not living by religious knowledge. So I urge you to put away the pursuit of knowledge means you never act in faith upon the signs that God gives us in his word. Make your faith real like it was real for these ladies, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, Mary, who in faith responded to the truth that God gave them. I'm going to pray, and we're going to move immediately into the Lord's Supper, because this Lord's Supper represents really what He purposed when He was born to the earth, and that is to offer Himself in death for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for... sending your only begotten Son into this world, that you, God, came in the flesh, born of a woman, born of a virgin, in a small hillside town of Bethlehem, to be ignored by humanity, hated, scorned, abused, and mistreated, so that you, could walk to the cross, hang there, and shed your blood for the remission of our sins. Lord, I, f- I thank you for that. I pray that that truth would be real to us, not just head knowledge. And if there's people here today who it's only head knowledge to them and they believe it, they know it to be true, but it's never been personal to them. It's never resulted in them humbling themselves, repenting of their sin, and crying out to you for forgiveness. That, Lord, today would be the day they would acknowledge that you alone are the Messiah. You are their Savior. Lord, we thank you for the brutality of the cross and how it truly represents our heart. That were desperately wicked. That although with our mouth at times we claim that we love you, or we did claim that we loved you, in our actions and in our hearts we hated you. We were your enemy. And yet you came to us and removed us from the side of the enemy, reconciled us, redeemed us, purchased us from the slavery of our own sin and brought us to light. And for that, we thank you. And for that, we gather around this table to give you the honor and you the glory alone. For that, we celebrate redemption. We thank you and we thank you alone. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.